past Friday night, just 48 hours ago, we were in Tulsa. Katie wanted to get Hannah down there to that big denominational church and college, Bible college there between, um, between Tulsa and Broken Arrow on 71st and just see Hannah's face light up with all of the, the pretty lights and that it certainly did. But, you know, as pretty as those were, there's a sign out front there in one of those buildings that says in great big, great big lights, happy birthday, Jesus. And I wonder, how many of those people that were there, looking those lights over, really think, really believe that Jesus' birthday is December 25th, according to the Bible? You know, it's sort of like the, and I know I mention this every year, it's one of my pet peeves, please forgive me, but it's like the three, the three wise men at the manger. When the wise men never went to the manger, and there wasn't necessarily three, and all of that. Uh, Matthew 2.11, they went to the house, etc. But, I'm guessing probably if you ask people, that the vast majority of people would believe that there were three wise men, and that they went to the manger, simply because that's what all of these manger scenes depict. Unfortunately, it's like so many people who believe they're saved by saying the so-called sinner's prayer. But that, too, is not in the Bible. You see, the point in my bringing all three of those up to lead into this lesson tonight on elders, the reason for my bringing those up is that there are a lot of things that people believe, and over the years they've just kind of put it on their hard drive and, and, and imprinted it on their psyche that aren't really biblical. A lot of people believe that saying, the Lord helps them who helps themselves is biblical. Book, chapter, and verse. Or this too shall pass, this soon shall pass. And it's not. And as I said, I bring that up because if we're not incredibly careful, we can be that same way when it comes to the topic of elders, and especially as it pertains to a certain portion of tonight's lesson on the eldership. Over the years, there's been a few not-so-biblical concepts, ideas, phraseology, which have just been naturally adopted by some in their overall understanding, not that it was based so much on the scriptures, but on people's personal perspectives or agendas or misunderstandings, particularly when it comes to how an elder must be the husband of one wife. 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.6, which we will get to in a few minutes. However, tonight's sermon does indeed serve as the third installation of a crucial Sunday night sermon mini-series entitled God's Righteous Requirements for Those Who Would Serve as Shepherds in His Son's Church. Because just as we have repeatedly discussed, in the same way that there are certain God-ordained requirements that one must meet in order to enter the Lord's Church, there are certain God-ordained requirements that one must meet in order to shepherd that same Lord's Church. Due to the magic of live-streaming, Yes. I don't have to go over too much of past lessons in review, and I won't, except to say that if you are listening to this lesson tonight and you haven't heard the first and second very foundational lessons I've already given, it's critical to go back and, and listen to those in order to understand the process by which a congregation, now I've just showed them, but this is going out, as you know, to everybody, and hopefully this will help other congregations as well in appointing elders. These classes are meant to help us first clearly see and then identify, select, and appoint 
the very specific men and their wives whom God, through the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures, has made clear are the ones that he wants to lead his people into the future as their elders, deacons, and their wives. Because as we noted from the Defending the Faith, Paul has yet expressed Defending the Faith Study Bible. Once humans begin to amend the list of qualifications to their own liking, it is no longer the Holy Spirit's qualifications list being used to appoint bishops and elders, but an uninspired, humanly devised or revised list. And so as we looked last week, we covered 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1. It brought us to what I called one of the most important words in the entire chapter of 1 Timothy 3. And that is the word must. These are non-negotiable. These are absolute requirements for those congregations and shepherds who would faithfully and obediently follow the word of God and be blessed by him for it. Then I did the same thing last week I'm going to begin with tonight. I read 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7. Please again notice, verses 2 through 6 is one long sentence. One long sentence. And the way it is worded, again, an elder must have all of these requirements. A bishop then, 1 Timothy 3, 2, must be blameless. But because it's all one sentence, must be the husband of one wife, must be temperate, must be sober-minded, must be of good behavior must be hospitable, must be able to teach. That's the way it works through these whole first four verses. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how will he be able to take care of the church of God? He also must be not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. That's the end of that sentence. Notice how the next sentence begins. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So tonight, let us begin with that first phrase in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2. First requirement that he must be is blameless. Now, <laughs> that does not mean sinless. I, you know, some congregations may think, well, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect man. Well, we're not looking for perfect men. We're looking for blameless men. The way the Bible defines blameless. And we're going to take a look at that at length tonight. As we covered at length, and we already know the word bishop is an overseer. A bishop. First and second word. Jews was the same person who was also referred to as an elder, a pastor, and a shepherd of the Lord's flock in the New Testament. We know they're all the same. A bishop then must, again, same word found in John 3, 1 through 7, where Jesus said, you must be born again. There's no way around it. Same word Jesus used in John chapter 4, when he said, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. There's no getting around it. it, 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 um, it has to be. Saul of Tarsus was told, go into the city, and you'll be told that you must do. There was no way around it. Same word, must. And then notice this. A bishop then must be. This is the key word, too. Be. Okay, well, that's just two little letters. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Please 
notice that the word B is current tense. Makes all the difference in the world. The word B is current. It's not past. It's not future. What does the Bible say? Don't, don't answer me out loud, but in your own minds. What does the Bible say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in your Bibles as well. If any man is in Christ, he is a new crea creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. But as I said, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as well. B is current tense. Are you today as a Christian what you were 15 years ago? If so, you have a growth problem. If not, then my point is valid. We are not today what we necessarily... How many times have you seen or heard... Somebody say, or maybe said it yourself, well, I remember so-and-so when he was in high school, and let me tell you, he's a different kid. That, that guy today is not the guy he wanted, right? What we are is not necessarily what we were. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 makes this point very well. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revelers, or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He said, they ain't going. And such, look at the tense, were some of you. Paul says to the saints in Corinth, look, people who ongoingly practice all of these things, they're not going to heaven. He said, and some of you were those things. But guess what? They're not now. Why? They were washed. They were sanctified. They were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What they used to be is not what they are. Keep that in mind. The word be is very important. Must be blameless. The Greek word that is right there. <laughs> I'm not going to try to pronounce it either. Well, maybe it will. Anapolemthos. That's as close as I can get. Uh, Translated blameless in the New King James Version is above reproach in the ESV. And some people say, well, if he's above reproach, that means that nobody's ever said anything bad about it. No, that's not what it means. It literally means, here's the literal meaning of that Greek word wherever it's used, cannot be laid a hold of. Cannot be laid a hold of. It is also used in 1 Timothy 5, 7 in regards to the word worthy widow. 1 Timothy 5.7, and in 1 Timothy 6.14, in regards to Timothy himself, that word is used, and it means cannot be laid a hold of. Let me explain to you from a few men that have a lot more knowledge than I do. Brother Kaufman said this, without reproach or blameless, that word. This is the great and all-inclusive qualification. I like this thought. West pointed out that the Greek word from which this comes means one who cannot be laid hold upon. That is a man without a handle. One who has given evil men no occasion whatever to blame or censure him. What it means is, if something has, has got no handle, you can't reach out and grab a hold of it. You can't make a charge stick is what that means. You can't, can't lay a hold of it. The late Grover Cleveland Brewer denominated this as really the only qualification for an elder. The other qualifications mentioned here and in Titus 
are just checkpoints for determining it. I like that. Think about it. He says, this is really the, the, the big umbrella. He must be blameless. And then all of the other qualifications, and I don't know, just, just to draw a word picture, I'm not saying this is totally, absolutely all-encompassing, but must be blameless. And then he's going to explain husband and wife and, and temperate and all these things, just showing all the different facets within which that man is blameless. And I thought, well, that's an intriguing concept. Let me continue. This word has been, of course, distorted out of its true meaning by saying it requires a bishop to be without sin. Brethren, there's nobody in the church who's not sinned. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, right? We're here because we're baptized into Christ. Now, we're without sin, yes, because of the blood of Christ. I'm talking about us ourselves as individuals. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, okay? So you're not going to find an elder who's never committed a sin, is my point. You can't use this word blameless to say, well, it's got to be a man who's absolutely perfect. No, it doesn't. Sinless perfection is not required of Christians nor of elders, and those are profoundly in error who make the high standard and evidence here the excuse for pointing none at all. Brother Kaufman is saying, look, if you're, if you're going to say, well, we can never appoint elders because nobody can meet the qualifications, nobody can be perfect enough, you don't understand the qualifications. You can't use that as an excuse to disobey the Lord. The very fact that Paul's appointing elders in every church immediately after his first missionary journey in Acts 14.23 proves that such officers are absolutely necessary in every congregation. Brother Lonnie Ritchie said this word means the very absence, and this is true of any provable charge of wrongdoing. It doesn't mean he hides things well. That's not the point. What it means is the absence of a legitimate charge. Since any man, including an elder, may be subjected to unfair or unjustifiable accusations, the implication must be that no charge of deliberate wrongdoing can be legitimately proven or brought against him. And, and stop and think about that. Were there charges against Jesus? Jesus was perfect, wasn't he? Was he sinless? And yet charges were brought against him. See, here's the thing. They weren't legitimate. They weren't provable. They were not charges that would stick. They couldn't get a hold of him. He didn't have a handle. They couldn't pin something on him. They couldn't pull him out and pin something on him. But he was still charged. So blameless here has that context of, yeah, sometimes there are going to be charges leveled against even the best of men and women. And there are. They were leveled against Jesus, and he was perfect. Look at me in Luke 6. Luke 6. Get an idea of this word blameless. Look what it says in Luke 6. And remember, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Luke 6, verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner the fathers did to the prophets. Look at verse 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Now, do you, see, do you see where there can be a contradiction here if you don't understand? Jesus says, people are going to hate you. They're going to say bad things against you. They're going to revile you. And he said, that's great if they're doing it because you're mine. He said, matter of fact, you've got a problem if everybody speaks well of you. Verse 26. That's the way they treated the false prophets. So, 
The requirement for an elder to be blameless cannot mean that nobody has ever, 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 ever levied a charge. Let me tell you what. If a man's living right, if a man's doing what God wants him to do in this world, are there going to be people that find fault with him? Absolutely. But the charges won't stick. You see, a man, a man who loves the Lord and is always doing things right is going to have those who feel guilty because they're not living right. They're always going to levy charges against a man like that, one that is honest and one that... that does everything the best he can for God. But you see, those charges won't stick. That man is still blameless. There's no legitimate charge. Nothing that sticks that can be brought against him. Jesus said in John 15, verses 18 and 19, he said, hey, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. People hate us just because we're Christians. But you see, that doesn't mean that a man who's hated because he's a Christian can't be an elder. He probably makes a pretty good one if he's living that well. Sometimes even from within the church, there will be those whom we have had personality conflicts or differences of opinion with, and maybe there is a brother or sister that will say, hey, so-and-so's been put forward for an elder, and, and I have an issue. Well, if it's a legitimate black-and-white biblical issue, that's one thing, okay? But if it's just a personality conflict or a difference of opinion, that's where the congregation has to use some discretion and understand the difference between what is a stickable charge and what is not. What is legitimate Christian behavior that can be legitimately criticized because the man did not do it versus somebody with just a personality conflict. Brothers Roper and Clore go on to explain further, while the term does not require this man to be sinless or perfect, it does indicate that no charge brought against him can be substantiated. Then he, uh, they brought this up, and I, and I love this. Think about this. Wrongs in the past have been repented of and corrected, and there has even been restoration if needed. Let me ask you a question. If a man does whatever, and he fully and truly repents, okay, if he cheats somebody in a business deal, first thing that comes to my head, I didn't even think about this, but I'm going into it a little. And, and, through the process of time, over the years, that man completely repents, repays like Zacchaeus, confesses to the Lord, confesses to the church, truly repentant, it's buried beneath the blood of Christ. Does anybody have a right to hold that charge against that man? Does he? Not, not no, absolutely not. And he, and he uses Peter as an example. Peter is an example of an individual who was guilty of a serious wrong, denying the Lord, but Peter later served as an elder, didn't he? 1 Peter 5, 1. I, Peter, your fellow elder. Here was a man who had denied the Lord, but here's where we see that tense thing come in. Peter was a man who had denied the Lord. But you see, Peter came back to the Lord. Peter repented and did his U-turn, if you will. And so, Peter, present tense, was blameless, wasn't he, when he became an elder? Was that sin going to still be held against him? No. Because it isn't about what he was back then, it's about what he is. That present tense makes all the difference. Peter denied the Lord, but he turned it around, and he served as an elder. Disqualification is the practical equivalent of a good reputation, says Brothers Roper and Clover. Brings us to the second element of this long sentence, which an elder must be. One which has a number of preconceived notions and beliefs attached to it. 
why I started the way I did tonight, because people can just get these ideas without really looking at what the Bible says about a number of things. And if we're not careful, we can too. Just kind of ingrain it on our hard drive about what that means without really looking at it. And so I think tonight, if we simply break down the sentence and the words used, we let the scriptures speak for themselves, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. If we, not, if we do not go beyond what is written, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and receive with meekness the implanted word able to save our souls, James 1, 21, we'll do all those things I believe we both can and will get the full picture of what God is talking about and intended for us to see in the lives of men who become his elders in his son's church. Here we go. A bishop, then, must be a husband of one wife. And before I get into this, I will tell you that almost every commentator that I read said something along the lines of, there's a variety of opinions on this, and there is. There's a variety of different understandings, on, and there is. But that doesn't mean that God put something out there that we can't understand. And so I'm sure that there are many different opinions in the congregation, perhaps. And all I ask for anybody who will ever listen to this, this teaching on this class tonight, this is one of the two most misunderstood or, or that there is the biggest variety of perspectives on, shall we say. This is one of two of them. But just take and really look at what the Bible says and let's talk about this. Taking it just as it is written, there are a couple of very obvious truths just on the surface that immediately come to mind. First off, can't be a polygamist. Can't have a whole bunch of different wives. I mean, that's pretty, I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious, okay? That's one of the big obvious ones. Remember, in those days in a pagan culture, there were certain pagan people who believed it was okay to have multiple wives, okay? And perhaps some of them were converted, brought their numerous wives with them. They couldn't be an elder because he must be the husband of one wife. It's as simple as that. We don't have a problem with polygamy in Oklahoma that I know of. All right. Number two. There's a number of other applications and instances where the truth of this statement must be brought into effect. That's not the only point of this. You know how you can take a scripture and it applies in a lot of different situations? While polygamy in Corinth may have been the big problem to which this was written, it still has applications to other situations. Same as Jesus with the woman at the well. When he said to her, he said, you know, you've been married five times, the man you're living with is, is not your husband. If you'd have asked me, I would have given you the living water. Now, can we use that to apply to anybody that God wants us to share the Bible with anybody? Can we use that as an illustration of that? Sure we can. It applies in other situations besides just sitting beside of a well in Samaria. And so, while it may have been the case that, that this was about polygamy, a lot, or, or that was the major reason it was written that way, because of the polygamy in Paul's day in certain pagan belief systems, there's still other places that we need to apply exactly what this says. For example, <laughs> the other real obvious one, the man has to be married. The man has to be married. A bishop must be the husband. He's got to be married. No single man's name should ever be put forward for consideration to serve as an elder. Does that make sense to everybody? That's pretty simple stuff, okay? But here's where it can get a little ticklish going forward. 
No single man's name should ever be put forward to, an el to be an elder, even if he, in fact, meets every other qualification with the exception of the Lady of Children. And even if he is the greatest servant in the entire congregation, he still can't be an elder. Not because he's a bad guy, but because God requires that he must be a husband of one wife. Do you know that Jesus Christ, Jesus was perfect, right? We know that. Did you know that Jesus Christ could not serve as a priest while he was on earth? Did you know that? Jesus could not serve as a priest while he was on earth because of God's requirement that his priest be from the tribe of Levi, and Jesus was not. He was from the tribe of Judah. If you want to read more about that, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 14, you can read later. Jesus Christ himself could not serve as a priest while on earth due to God's divine requirements regarding priests. Hebrews 7, 11 through 14. Neither could Jesus Christ have served as an elder, even in the church he purchased, even if he stuck around physically after the church was established, even if he stayed till the end of the first century, Jesus was perfect. Jesus was flawless. Jesus did not have sin, but Jesus could not be an elder in the church. Why? A bishop must be married. Jesus wasn't. Does that make Jesus a bad guy? No. Does that make Jesus stop serving? No. It just means that because of God's requirements, he couldn't be an elder any more than he could be a priest. Even in the church of which he is the Savior. That is absolutely no reflection on a single man's abilities. It's just simply that God requires something else of an elder. The same is true for those who are widowed, even if they were previously an elder. Brother Lonnie Ritchie said this If having a wife is essential to him being qualified to serve as an elder, then not having one disqualifies him from that position. And that makes sense. The man has to be married. When an elder loses his wife, he no longer meets his qualification that he must be. We win all the reasons why, but that takes care of it. God's got his reasons. He must be the husband of one wife. Those two are fairly easy to understand. The other two slightly less obvious answers to the questions, which we must also cover in this, number one is this. First question. If a man's wife dies and he remarries a faithful Christian woman, of course, as he is commanded to do by 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39, if his wife dies and he remarries a faithful Christian woman, as he's commanded to in 1 Corinthians 7.39, and he's otherwise qualified in all the other qualifications, can he become an elder? His wife died and he remarried a good Christian woman who meets the qualifications. Can he become an elder? Technically, can he become an elder? A lot of people say, no, he can't. No, he can't because of what this says. But I think we need to take a little closer look at the text. First off, again, notice the tense. He must be, present tense. If the Holy, here's the question. If the Holy Spirit had meant to say, or put across the point, 
that a bishop then must be a man who has only been married once or had but one wife. How do you suppose the Holy Spirit would have said that? If the Holy Spirit had meant it to be past tense, how do you suppose the Holy Spirit would have said, a bishop then must be a man who has only been, past tense, married once, or only had but one wife? I can tell you how I think the Holy Spirit would have said it, just about like I just did. Man must have only had one wife. That's not what it says. Look at the text. It's not what it says. What tense would he have used if he had meant that the man could only have been married once? He'd have used the past tense, obviously, to reflect the man's entire life up to that point, but he didn't. A bishop then must be the husband of one wife. Currently. B is the present tense. Legitimately. In the eyes of God. Remember, it's about what is in the eyes of God. Just as we've already noted from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the Apostle Peter, we talked about him. Consider this as well. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 7, 2, and 3? Go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. And I'm not pushing for, you know, anything. I'm just trying to explain the text. And I want us all to understand from God's perspective what it says. And I encourage you, if you've not kind of understood it this way, take some thought to this. If I've got it wrong, tell me how. The Apostle Paul said about remarriage, if your spouse dies, the following in Romans 7, 2 and 3. Watch this. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. And of course this goes both ways, the man and his wife, wife and her husband. So the question is, if a man's wife dies and he remarries, is he currently in the eyes of God the husband of one wife? Yes, he is. He still only got one wife because that first marriage contract ended at her death. He is currently still only the husband of one wife in the eyes of God, even though he has had, in the past, past tense, two wives over the course of his life. Technically, biblically, qualificationally, that allows him to serve as an elder if the congregation is okay with that. Now, I'm going to wrap these both up in a minute. Second question that usually comes up is, what about the man who's been divorced and remarried? Now, there are some elements to that question in real-life application that get really murky and really tricky. Get something we have to exercise extreme caution on. However, the technical answer to the question isn't really all that difficult. It's really no less clear than the one we just came up with. Matthew 19 and verse 9 makes incredibly clear that if a man's wife cheats on him and commits adultery, 
that he is free to end his marriage contract with her through divorce if he chooses and then remarry in the eyes of God. Isn't that true? If a husband cheats on his wife, wife cheats on her husband, Matthew 19, 9, adultery can end the marriage contract and a man can or a woman can remarry as long as they were not the guilty party in Matthew 19, verse 9. So, Brother Lonnie Ritchie puts both, well, what if the wife dies, and what if the man is divorced, this way. There has been and will continue to be a great deal of discussion among disciples as to exactly what is meant by this statement. Must be the husband of one wife. Some take it to mean that he can only have been married once in his lifetime. According to this view, if he has lost his wife to death or scriptural divorce, that's the key, he cannot serve as an elder because if he were remarried, that, then he would have two wives. This is what some say. Look, whether she died or, or she committed adultery and left, if he remarries at all, he's the husband of two wives. That's what some say. But this is what Brother Richie said. He brought up some really good points. He said that seems too rigid a view to him, and this is why. He says, after all, Jesus does approve of some divorces and remarriages, Matthew 19 and verse 9. Some. And a man whose wife has died and who has remarried does so with God's approval, 1 Corinthians 7, 39, which I already mentioned. In either case, the marriage here, here you go. In either case, the marriage contract with the first mate is ended, and the man is free to make another marriage contract with God's blessing. He does not have two active marriage contracts at the same time, same time, thus he's what Paul terms the husband of one wife. Currently, he must be that now. Now, how can the man in either of these cases be viewed as having two, and this is, this is the great question. Okay, man's wife dies, or she cheats on him, and everybody knows it, it's, it's not a secret, it's not hard to figure out, it's, we all know, etc. And so he divorces her scripturally, and he remarries. Brother Richie's point is this. How can that man be considered as having two wives at that time? His first wife died, and he remarries. How can he be considered as having two wives? Because he doesn't have two, he's got to have one. But how can he be considered as having two? And two, Brother Richie writes, if he has two wives, current tense, isn't he guilty of bigamy? Isn't he? If a man has two wives, is he guilty of bigamy? So, if a man has two wives, if we're going to say, well, he can't serve as an elder because his first wife died and remarried, that makes him the husband of two wives, we don't need to be worried about considering him as an elder. We need to be enforcing church discipline because the man is a bigamist. Can't have it both ways. He's either the husband of one wife currently or he's the husband of two wives. He can't be both if she's dead. Good Good point. He says, on the other hand, if he is in fellowship with God in his second marriage and is not the object of church discipline, then how can Christians refuse him their fellowship without putting themselves at odds with God? I thought, that's a great question. Number two, he says, okay, if he's in fellowship with God in his second marriage, that means his first wife died or she cheated, how can the church refuse him the right to serve God in any capacity he is qualified to serve in without putting themselves at odds with God? Legitimate point. The brother who is remarried after a scriptural divorce 
or the one who is remarried after the death of his wife is in fact presently, currently, the husband of one wife, and he meets the qualifications as given here by the apostle to serve in the capacity of church bishop. It seems patently clear then that the bishop must only have one wife at a time in the eyes of God. He cannot be a bigamist and serve in the role of church bishop. He would sum it up later by saying he must be a married man who is faithful to his wife and not been divorced for any unscriptural cause. Brothers Roper and Cloer said the phrase one woman man implies that he has remained faithful to his marriage vows. An elder should have an unblemished reputation in the area of sex and marriage. And finally, Brother Kaufman agreed with him too. He said literally all kinds of interpretations of this requirement are found in commentaries. And he's absolutely right. But as Herbie said, there's nothing in Paul's writings to suggest the notion that there being anything dishonorable in a second marriage, provided, of course, the second marriages were due to the death of a previous partner or divorce for scriptural reasons. As Ward noted, above reproach dominates the whole list. Anything reprehensible in the marital relations of a prospective elders would certainly disqualify him. And see, that's where this comes back to discretion. While a man, in either one of those two cases that I've mentioned too many times already, remarries, technically, he's qualified to serve as an elder. Technically. But, at the same time, where the church has to be incredibly careful here is that if you haven't if you haven't ever tried to untangle or unwind a marital situation where there's more than a husband and wife involved, let me tell you, it can get murky in a hurry. It can get real messy. It can get real, real bad. Sometimes the whole truth will never be known. And the thing is, is if you have a man who is a divorced man, in particular, not so much after his wife's death, but if you have a divorced man, you don't know because you weren't there exactly what took place, and he may be open to other charges, and certainly, probably, if the thing that drove her away was him and his behavior, that's going to come out in one of the other qualifications that's going to disqualify him. Certainly his children aren't going to be what they ought to be, and certainly he's not going to be seen as a man who's above reproach or blameless or any of those things even today. So, but again, the church has to be incredibly, incredibly careful because the bottom line is the church selects the elders. The church, the congregation, selects those whom will serve as their elders. They need to be incredibly careful to make absolutely sure that he is truly the husband of one wife according to God. Period. I may get a few eyebrows when I say it's the congregation's responsibility to select the elders. Yes, Titus was to appoint them, but the congregation's Selected them. Titus was left on Crete to appoint them. Titus 1.5. But it is the congregation's responsibility to put them forth or pick them, as we would note from the necessary inference we get from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Wherein verses 2 and 3 say, Then the twelve, go ahead and turn there if you want. This is important. Acts 6, 1 through 6. Not to say that any of it's not important, but Acts 6, 1 through 6, verses 2 and 3. 
Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. The, the apostles were going to appoint these men that were selected by the congregation to serve in certain capacities, just like Titus was going to appoint them, but it's the congregation's responsibility to pick those men they respect enough who meet these qualifications to follow. This is why these classes and understanding them is so extremely vital by every member of this congregation and any congregation that is getting ready to select elders because seeing, selecting, and putting forth for appointment those God-approved men and their wives whom God wants to lead. His church is neither the current elders, current deacons, or current minister's responsibility to carry out what belongs to and set squarely upon the shoulders of the entire church that these men are going to lead. We all respect Brother Eddie Clover. That red set of commentaries, Brother Roper, wrote commentary on Timothy and Titus, and, and Brother Clover was the, the general editor, and this is what they had to say about that. Who decides whether or not a man has the qualities listed? Following the precedent set by the apostles in Acts 6, the answer is the local congregation. When men were needed to serve tables, the apostles did not personally select them. Rather, they summoned the congregation of the disciples and said to them, Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, just we just read. We are not told what process the congregation employed to select the seven men, but somehow they reached a consensus and selected the seven men. Acts 6 and verse 5. Paul gave the qualifications for elders and deacons by inspiration. We cannot change or minimize them. Nevertheless, even when we are committed to doing exactly what Paul said, questions may still arise regarding what precisely is required by a qualification. These questions must be answered by the local congregation. After careful study and much prayer, which is the reason for this study, because the time is coming again when the sheep, if you will, in this flock, will select from among themselves those men whom the scriptures have made clear are God's choice to lead them into the future. I'm sure that's more than enough for y'all to mull over tonight. So we'll stop there. Please, if you've heard anything tonight, say, eh, I don't know about that. Study it. I put it out there. Study it. Take a look at it. As with anything else, the best way to go in a Bible study is not to go in with preconceived notions, but simply to go in and say, what does God want? Let me look and see what my God wants for me to do. Tonight, if there's anybody here who would start down that road, and, and again, our, our young people, from the time that they become Christians, from the time they're baptized into Christ, is teenagers, or younger if that happens. Their goal needs to be to meet these qualifications. This is the cream of the crop qualifications. Isn't, isn't that the epitome of Christianity and all that we should be to be of good repute, blameless, 
for our marriages to last, for our kids to be faithful. Isn't that what Christianity, isn't that the epitome of, of what this all should look like? This is, this is the cream of the crop. This is what we're all supposed to be shooting for. Whether you're a teenager just been baptized, young people who've just got married, whomever. Become elders, deacons, and their wives in the Lord's church. If you would start that journey tonight by being baptized into Christ, or if you would like the prayers of the church to more fully understand, or even a Bible study, we stand ready to assist you in any way. Let us know your need as we stand and sing.